talking about the effect that this book has. Now, this simple little book has had a very profound effect on me, too. I basically chose it because I didn't want to work very hard this month. I just figured it would take a little break. And it hasn't been difficult in the sense that it's not like Promise of Immortality or uh, Hindu Way of Awakening, where you just have to read a paragraph over and over to have a clue as to what he's saying. But I, I think that the definition of this book is it's deceptively simple because you read it through and it just the ideas I, I heard you Brenda commenting about it were you talking about this book yeah it's just it's so easy to read but the implications of it are total and and there's he talks in here about true channeling is to draw inspiration from a source higher than the ego so I think a lot of times people I mean, I'm sort of was trying to think about this. A lot of times we're not channeling in the sense that we're just recycling our own thoughts. But on the other hand, uh, Master said thoughts are universal, not individually rooted. And so we merely reflect states of consciousness. Even the ego, self-involved ego, is just a state of consciousness that you're reflecting. And in a sense, you have chosen to reflect it. So what, what he raises in this chapter, which we're talking about tonight, is this the very simple concept of magnetism, which is that we draw to ourselves. And he even talks about, you know, passivity can draw a dark reality and magnetism can draw a higher reality. And at all times, we are the fruit of what we are magnetizing to ourselves. It's very true. That's why Swamiji, I think I mentioned it last, what, last week, he's so... Um, he doesn't seek out tamasic experiences. He doesn't seek out low energy experiences because why would he want that it's not merely that you have that experience but then you also set up a magnetism that draws more of that and in here he talks about to those who have more shall be given to those who have not even the little they have shall be taken away because the law of magnetism gets into effect and the more we um, lower our energy the more our energy goes lower so it's a very and then we're the more tired we are the more tired we are it's a very um simple but subtle, uh, life-changing concept, very important. Yeah. Well, is talking about the difference between reading it and realizing it. And that is, in a sense, what I was saying, too. Somehow just reading these, these books, I've read this book before, I mean, I knew, I knew what a good book it was, but you just sort of realize all of a sudden, oh, this is about me. This isn't about somebody else. This is really about me. That's what Swami's genius is as a writer and master too. I mean, that's where, what master, master brought such a supremely practical teaching and he brought it, um, you know, that the essence when, as, as you know, you've been to India and some of you have been to India, you think of this as like an Indian teaching and you go over to India and you realize this is, this is not there. There's, no, there's no, nothing remotely like this in India. There's, it's no more present in India than it is in this country. It's, it's a distillation. You can see the principles, but you can see the principles in Catholicism and uh, traditional Christianity too. And you can see the principles somewhere back there in the Hindu tradition. But, but he said what Americans wanted was something practical. They just wanted a practical, simple teaching. Americans have this very practical idea. Give me something I can do. And so Master created this uh, concept and... Uh, Swamiji is now working on editing. Master wrote a book called Science of Religion, which was actually the first book that was published in English. It turned out, in fact, that Master himself did not write it. When he went to Japan as a young man, he had the inspiration for the ideas of that book, and he wrote out the outline. 
but he was not adept at English at that time because he was still living in India. So he asked one of his uh, devotees, a man named Dhirananda, Swami Dhirananda, to write it out for him. So the book has wonderful concepts, but it has rather a pedantic style of writing. And in the course of uh, the, the lawsuit that SRF filed against us, a lot of those early books became, became, we became aware they were in the public domain, so we decided we would publish them. So when we started to publish Science of Religion, Swami looked at it and said, I've always loved this book, but I understand that Master didn't write it. He said, and when you read it, you can tell. So Swami's been essentially rewriting it um, with the same concepts, but more with Master's tone of voice. And he's calling it Yogananda's books as told to his disciple, essentially, so there won't be a misunderstanding. That's all a long introduction for the simple fact that when Master wrote the Science of Religion, he intended it, and in fact it has been, the basis of his whole teaching. And the basis is real simple. What everyone is seeking is to experience more happiness and to escape from suffering. And, and to do that, we attune ourselves to a higher consciousness. And Swamiji has given it a new name. It's a wonderful name. God is for everyone. <laughs> just a very simple answer. God is for everyone. And that's just, there it is. That's what it's about. And then he, he talks about, as Master did, a different concept of God. You know, the God that's been presented to us is not really for everyone. He's for just those who believe this way or who were born that way or who go through this ritual or this thing or that thing. But the true concept of the divine is for everyone. Even more, he is everyone. And there is that just sudden realization, however it comes, that this is really about my life. And that's the fun of this book. Whereas you, you think of channeling as something that weird people do in dark rooms, in fact, it's what you do. It's what you do every morning when you get up. It's what you do when you're asleep. You're always, we don't exist. We're just a window unto the infinite. And so it's just a question of what filter we put over that light that's coming through and how consciously we engage in the process of uh, adapting that filter. It's, it's both, as you say, a little scary, and it's also really fun because it sort of opens up so much to us um, that we didn't know how we had. That's what we'll talk about tonight and next week is just sort of how to get more in tune with that. Any other questions or comments? Yes, Sarah? Um, speaking of what you were talking about, like the spiritual church or something like that, that's more like Swami described people who have psychic abilities and can read minds and things like that. And oftentimes people with such powers are very sincere in their desire to use them well. And it's sort of stages. And all of this, even passive channeling, which is not good, nonetheless awakens people to the concept that there's a world beyond this one. So everything is a, st a stage along the way. He, Swami is really, Swami is very challenging in this book. You know, he, he just didn't mince words. He just put it flat out what he thought was true, because it is true. Um, but but uh, it's, in, it's in the, in the page, inside the pages of a book. It's not, it's not a campaign that we wage. But it is important. It's very important also for us to realize the difference between just being subconscious. And Swami comments in there that a great deal of so-called channeling is just really an overactive subconscious. But that's important also because... Um, our own subconscious minds can fool us. And we can think that we're being sort of very much inspired when we're really just being subconscious. Subconscious in the sense that we know it's not a normal revelation, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a higher revelation. It just means it's a sideways move, or in some cases a downward move. 
just our own wish fulfillment or just our own fantasies. You just, by, the question is really the question asked to Jesus. How can you tell false prophets from true? How can you tell false prophecy from true prophecy? And just by the fruits, by the effect it has on your life, by the effect it has on the lives of others, whether or not you just have to learn slowly. And it's not always that easy. In Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, one of the obstacles to spiritual growth is false visions, false hallucinations, he calls them. But it's interesting that um, it's, it's, so, it's such a common flow that in, even in the Yoga Sutras, Patanjali mentions it, that you start having what you think are visions but are not really visions. They're subconscious, not superconscious, but they're definitely different but you're not really channeling something higher than your ego. You're just kind of getting mixed up in another dimension of your ego. And that's why it's very important to have the right attitude about what you do. And he, he, Swami makes a very strong point in here, slightly indirectly, but pretty directly. Just don't seek to have those kind of things. Intuitions may come to you, but don't go seeking them. I know once um, Swami made a comment uh, about a certain person that they were more psychic than spiritual. And it was an interesting statement. And so I asked him, what's the difference? Because it wasn't somebody who was going around in gypsy clothes telling fortunes or anything like that. But he said, uh, a spiritual person's first and only goal is to find God. A psychic person's may be to develop the capacity to be psychic. And so a psychic person may know things that are not commonly known. And it may actually come out of their own reality. It's not channeling. It's not another entity. But it depends on what the intention behind that is. Is there, a, is there a, an interest in that as a phenomenon or is the interest really in finding God? And so it just depends on what you're trying to do. Just like Swami talked about how that woman sort of drew him in, tell me what my sign is. And so he focused in on telling her what his sign was and he was perfectly capable of doing it. But then he thought afterwards, why? Why would I do that? What would be the point? Because all that just shows it's just about, what is it about? Where does it take us? Now, Master selectively did miracles when Yogananda, especially when he first came to this com com country, he did lots of demonstrations of super, um, super normal powers and miraculous healings. That was among the many reasons why he gathered thousands at his lectures was that he put on a real show. Um, but he gradually stopped doing it because it wasn't drawing people in the right way. So he became more, less, uh, less obviously abnormal and, and made people work for the intuitive perception instead of just uh, giving it to them so blatantly. But at first, that's how he caught, got a lot of attention, was uh, stopping his heart, having two different pulses on two sides of his body, <laughs> stopping his breath, you know, just things that you're not supposed to be able to do, lying, uh, with his head and his heels on, a on, a, on two chairs and just being rigid in between and having people bounce on him and he could still just stay there. I mean, these are not normal things. You know, just having people try to press him up against the wall and just using, pushing, you know, crowds of people back away from him without even using his arms, just using his stomach muscles and his force of will. I and mean, these are very unusual demonstrations. Plus healing. He healed people. It's very exciting. Now, for Master, of course, he had no interest in any of that, but he, he used it as God told him to use it for the sake of awakening people spiritually. So you have to, it's just, it's, 
because such things will come to a person. You'll, as Swamiji says, you naturally develop a lot of intuition and you naturally develop the ability to see things in a way that, an, an inspiration that isn't of the ego, that goes outside of the ego. But one has to be, I don't exactly know what I want to say. You don't want to rely on that. You don't want to focus on it. At the same time, that's exactly what you want to live by. <laughs> so it just, you just have to integrate it into the normal flow of your life in some way. A little, yes. Could, um, could someone open the window? It feels a little hot in here. More in the next chapter. But, uh, so next week we'll deal with it even more. But this week I have, I've had some thoughts about how to get across. Because that did seem to me like, what is magnetism? What is passive? What is magnetic? It seemed to me like the whole question that we're dealing with this week. So instead of, I mean, as soon as I go there, then I won't be asking for any more comments. So are there any others? Well, I guess not. Okay, I'm going to move this over, so... There's lots of things in this chapter, but I'm really just going to deal with this question of passive versus magnetic, because I think once we get that, we get everything. Now, it's all, it's all the groundwork for that reality is all set up in the previous chapters, and you sort of see this, the structure of Swamiji's books is always very interesting, because it's, it's very integrated and profound, but it's not always exactly obvious, although it is when you think about it. He spent so much time, the first half of the book, he basically was describing to us how this universe is really structured. Isn't that what you would call it? He talks about the causal, the astral, and the material world. He talks about the getting the concept, putting out the energy, and finally manifesting the reality that you want to see. He talks about um, the material world itself just being a projection of the astral world, and then at great length he talks to us all about the astral world as the causative force behind this world that we're living in. Now he talks about the astral world to a certain extent so that we'll understand what entities are, what angels are, what disincarnate entities are. And, and I love the way he talks about just because the front door is open, would a refined person go in and look around? And just trying to, to demystify the idea of somebody who happens to be in the astral world and therefore has powers that seem unusual here but are not really powers, they're just a factor of not being in the body. But what he's really describing to us is, is something that's very fundamental to the spiritual path and I mean as Tom was saying earlier and I could certainly say myself, I've heard these teachings for so many years. I was 18 years old when I first started reading this, I'm 55 now, and it's been, there's been no break in my interest. It's been continuous and pretty much all-absorbing for all these years in between. And yet, I will just suddenly say something very fundamental like, the material world is just a projection of energy. And therefore, energy is the, is the defining force. And I'll say that, and I will, it will be like such a revelation to me. Even though I could have repeated those words, and I probably did repeat those words, even in front of many, many people, countless times. But we ourselves, just keep getting it on a deeper and deeper level because it isn't, just as Tom was saying, it's not just a matter of being able to say the words, it's instinctively responding to life from that level. There's a, an example that I always love, uh, it, it, it indirectly related, but it sort of describes what it's like. There's a book called The Hiding Place by Corey Tenboom, which is an extremely inspiring story. It's a bit of a rugged story, but it's a good story. She was a, a, an elderly spinster in um, Holland when the Nazis took over, a deeply devoted Christian lady from a, a, a beautiful, devoted family. 
And when the Nazis started persecuting the Jews, she and her elderly, older spinster sister and her father and the whole family just started saving Jews because it was the only thing they could do in the circumstance. Eventually the family was taken to the concentration camp and everybody died except Corey Ten Boom. But in the meantime, during the years when they were taking a lot of Jewish people into their house and having to try to hide them, they developed a hiding place in the house because they knew that with, they had such a wide network that it was inevitable that the Gestapo would find out and they wanted to be able to get all the Jews in the house into the hiding place before the Gestapo found them. So the hiding place was at the top of this three or four story house and so when the Gestapo came to the ground floor, everybody would run upstairs and go into the hiding place. And in fact, it did work. Even when they were arrested, all their, their Jews made it to the hiding place and were la later taken out and saved. So they, would ha they practiced the Gestapo raids over and over again. They'd ring the bell and then she had some young nieces and nephews and they would act the part of the Gestapo and every, all the Jewish people would rush to the hiding place and they would you know, test them to see how fast they could get there, how quickly they could obliterate the traces of their presence and so on. And they would often, of course, do the raids in the middle of the night because that was the best time to capture people. They'd be in their beds, they would, they would be sluggish. Corey was deeply devoted but just had a very hard time waking up from sleep. And so the bell would ring and this hysterical force would start and the hiding place was actually in her room because she was in the, in the topmost room. And then her nephew would rush in and wake her out of sleep and shine a light in her eyes and demand to know, where are the Jews? Where are the Jews? And she would invariably answer in the hiding place behind the wall <laughs> because she just couldn't catch it fast enough. And they just worked with her and worked with her and worked with her until she could come out of a dead sleep and say, what are you talking about? And just do it very convincingly. Jews, what could you possibly be asking me about? You know, we're poor watchmakers here. Why would we have Jews? And it's always seemed to me that that's a perfect analogy for our progress on the spiritual path, is that we go through our life and we are constantly having pop quizzes. And we're being awoken out of a dead sleep and somebody shines a light into our eyes and says, are you a material or a spiritual being? You know, <laughs> how do you solve problems? What is it that you think is really real? And we answer, I am an ego in a body, you know, over and over again. <laughs> and then we get to try again. Whenever I'm on the freeway, and something happens and my car is about to be smashed and I become frightened like that. I always think, well, failed again. When uh, we had the, the earthquake here, the Loma Prieta earthquake 12 years ago or something like that, I, you know, one of my friends was saying, oh, as soon as the earth began to shake, I began to say, Om Guru, Om Guru, Om Guru. As soon as the earth began to shake, I began to say, ah, like that. <laughs> I just panicked and ran out of the house. There was no Om Guru, Om Guru. I mean, eventually I came to that, but that is not where I went first. I'm not proud of that, but that's exactly what happened. It's just, what are you, who are you? I'm the ego in the body and it's threatened and I am really scared. And then gradually it occurred to me that maybe there was something else going on. So it's not just a question of emergencies. It's just a question of an everyday response. How do we solve problems? How do we respond to the world around us? And that's the spiritual discipline. Absolutely, we do our kriyas. Absolutely, we meditate and pray and energize. But why do we do all those things? We do all those things so that we will have enough direct experience of a reality other than the body and the ego so that when, we're, when somebody shines a bright light suddenly into our eyes, we have something to fall back on. 
and, and or when problems come, the energy, we know just how to surge through with the energy. We know how to direct the energy. That's what we practice in energization, quality and quantity of energy under the control of the will. I mean, when the earth started shaking and I started screaming and running out of the house, the, I had quantity of energy, but I didn't have a lot of quality, and it wasn't really under the control of my will. I was not in that moment practicing the energization exercises. After a few minutes, I did practice them in the sense that I gathered my energy together, and I, I improved the quality, and I, I gained some mastery over it. It was the pop quiz on the exercise that I'd been doing all the time. When you go into deep meditation, or even shallow meditation, but when you try to meditate, especially if you're doing Kriya, which I know most of you do, and you go into the energy inside the spine, and you move the energy up and down through the chakras, and you just deeply feel that that is your reality. Then when you want to accomplish something, what do you do? Do you run around and make phone calls and try to get all your contacts lined up? And what, what do you do? Or do you go inside and realize this universe is made up of energy? And that's what it responds to. All the years that I've been with Swamiji, the, you know, the single uh, salient characteristic is that he always works with the quality of the energy. And everything else follows. I remember in the, in, in the early years when Seva was in charge of pretty much everything and we were having our usual hard time of no money and no prospects of ever having money and no ideas for how to get more money and uh, you know things are just limping along as they really limped along for years and years and years. And Seva was explaining it to Swamiji in terms of, well, we, you know, we, we can't put out this product because we don't have the money, and this, this endeavor didn't really work so well, and so they've come back and it hasn't come together, and this is, we've got a problem here, and this one isn't working, and that one isn't working. And, and Swamiji listened to it all, and he said, well, it all sounds really good to me. And Seva was so bewildered. He said, because the quality of energy is very good, the spirit is good. And if the spirit is good, then sooner or later it will work out. And if things, even if things are going beautifully, but if the magnetism, in other words, the spirit and consciousness behind them is wrong, it's really on its way to collapse, regardless. In an interesting way, um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Parkinson's Law. If you haven't read Parkinson's Law, you really ought to. It's a little book uh, by, I think his name is Northcote. I was raised on it, so I think everybody knows it. My father loved that book, so it was like sort of like as a little child, I always knew about Parkinson's Law. And what it is, it's a very interesting and very amusing study of the way organizations work. Not as cynical as Dilbert at all, far more intelligent, and not as sort of, Dilbert's just utterly depressing. But Parkinson's Law is just interesting, and he just describes how things work. And he talks about, he said, when you go to a, a, a company where they, they built this huge building and it's named after the company and you go up to the 50th floor to the president's office and you walk across an acre of three-inch carpet and you see his, his uh, desk, which is 15 feet across of polished wood, and you think, wow, this company is just really great. He says, actually, that company's about to tank. It's about to die. He said, if you go to the company where you have to go up the back stairs and you can hardly get up there because all the boxes are there and everybody's desk is side by side and you can't even find the president because he's so busy, he's on the telephone over here and all these things are happening. He said, now that's the company that's really working because if you're, by the time you have time to build that building and buy that desk and put that carpet, your creativity is no longer going 
toward what you're really trying to make. It's now become imploded on itself and it's just making yourself feel good. It's not really doing what you set out to do. He uses the classic example, famous example, of the British in India. Because these are not just theories. He gives you example after example. That when the British finally got themselves together in India and built New Delhi, and just built it just perfectly, they finally got their capital just the way they wanted. It was just before they got thrown out. Because they weren't doing anything at that point except just serving themselves and the magnetism. They'd lost the magnetism. They'd lost the spirit. They'd lost the right attitude. I mean, those are just Parkinson's other most famous laws. Work expands to fill the time allotted. It's one of his most famous laws. <laughs> and it's, and he, he, again, he uses all these examples explaining to you. He uses one from the British Navy about how the smaller the actual Navy got, the bigger the support staff got. <laughs> and how they used to run this huge Navy with just a few support staff, and then they ran this tiny Navy with this huge support staff, just, uh, just because that's how things are. And he explains it in great detail, very entertainingly. But he was talking about the fact, he, without talking about self-realization, that it's the magnetism of the situation that brings about the result. Now, this is perfectly clear when you understand causal astral material world. And, and with Swamiji, through all the years that I've known him, he's always focused first and foremost on the quality of the energy. I know he said to, to me once, he said, you think you'll do more good by doing more, but sometimes you won't because your energy isn't as good as if you did less. Does that, does that make sense? And I've always, ever since that, always looked to the quality of my magnetism. Because if my magnetism is bad, it doesn't matter how I persevere. If I've become martyred, if I've become impatient, I joke sometimes, it hasn't happened to me in a long time, but people will call for counseling and so on like that. And sometimes people are concerned, you know, I don't impose upon you. And I always say, look, if I can't do it, I'll always say no. And if I've overdone it, which used to be more so in the earlier years, somebody will be telling me even some very serious problem and the thought will occur to me, you know, thoughts will come into my mind like, there must be something wrong with you to have a problem like this. <laughs> I mean, that's not my normal thought at all. But when that thought comes, I recognize that I'm just tired and I have to quit. And I might, you know, I have to take a break. It might be that I could say exactly the right things, but it doesn't matter because the energy behind it is going to be wrong. It's going to be impatient. You know, sometimes one gets pushed beyond one's good energy. But once you realize that the quality of your energy is wrong, no matter how you think you're faking it, you're not really going to be doing anybody any good because that's what's really happening. The final outer expression, even if it looks nice, is really just the fruit of the energy behind it. So at all times, in everything that we do, it has to be the quality of our magnetism that we look to. And our magnetism is our attitude and our consciousness and our energy, and you can't fake it. It doesn't make any difference how nice you manage to look. I remember this woman once was very uh, put out with someone else, and the, the, the first person A, woman A, who was the one who had the very bad attitude, met person B, and because person A was uh, trained to be polite, she was very, very polite, you know, hello, how are you? Person B, being somewhat intuitive, felt absolutely assaulted and insulted by person A. Person A was later outraged that person B would feel that way, and it was only after I did a lot of careful probing and found out, well, what did you really think? Well, you know, she was furious at her, but thought she had covered it. I said, well, you were furious at her. You could have said anything. It doesn't matter. It came right through. And so if we're working selfishly, 
if we're working fearfully, if we're working angrily, if we're working impatiently, whatever we do, it'll have that quality to it. You know, um, people who are very sensitive don't like to eat the food cooked by just anybody because the food has a certain uh, quality to it. Swamiji talked about a restaurant that he knew about where the food was very good, but he always felt a little bad after he ate it <laughs> because there was just something wrong with whoever cooked it. And that's why mother's cooking is always considered to be the best because mother will just put into what she makes all her love for you. And it doesn't even matter if mother is that good a cook. It'll just seem really good. We were visiting a family in another part of the country and they were so excited because we we're going to mother's house for dinner. They just told us over and over how good mother's cooking was. Well, it wasn't. That's all I can say. <laughs> but to them it really was because she really was a very loving mother. And it was quite clear that she put a lot of her love into the food. And she particularly loved her family, of course, and they were all in the same wavelength. I mean, it was nice for us, but it just wasn't anything like what her children thought it was. <laughs> but it, to them, it was. It had always been that way. It just it had that quality to it. And more than that, in this, on this particular planet, like attracts like. It's, it's, it's what it says about in the astral world, you know, but it's also, it's very true in this world. Whatever you're vibrating, because it's all energy, you put out a certain quality of magnetism, and that's what you meet. In the last month's class, many of you were also here, I was talking about um, uh, karma and how karma will come to you even from the past and if your magnetism is changed in the meantime, it won't find as much of a connecting link with you. And I was talking in this class about astral entities, dark astral entities. We were talking about how to deal with disincarnate entities and I was saying they can't affect you physically they can only connect with you vibrationally. So in the vibration that they primarily use is fear, or he touches another one here, desire for power. If you're, I was talking about it in a different way, but there has to be some vibrational link for them to come to you and then for them to be able to get into you. And if there isn't, there's just vibrations they can't match. And for all karmic circumstances to be able to touch you, there has to be something that draws it, and then there has to be some capacity for it to meld. All of the um, more subtle uh, efforts to become prosperous are all based on that. You know, that's, money doesn't like, it's not a physical thing where you sit there and then dollar bills start coming to you like, like this. It's rather that you get on a wavelength in which there's prosperity and abundance, and then opportunities begin to come back to you. And that's why tithing works so powerfully, or, do, or being generous with your money always attracts money to you. There's a, a man named Templeton who was a, uh, we put this in our newsletter, he has been an investment broker for 30 years or something like that. He's a very wealthy man. He gives certain prizes and so on. And he wrote, he said, he's, he's dealt with the investment, with the money of, he said, 600,000 people over his career. He said he's dealt with some of the wealthiest people in the world. And he made this statement. He said, anybody who tithes faithfully and regularly, not less than 10%, he said, for not less than 10 years, always ends up prosperous. This is a very simple statement. Because in doing that, you're affirming your faith in divine abundance, and by action, you're connecting yourself. You're not merely saying, oh, I know God provides. You're saying, I know God provides so strongly that I will, I will follow the biblical dictum. I will take 10% of every penny that comes to me. 
If I get one dollar, I'll give a dime. If I get 10 cents, I'll give a penny. If I get $100,000, I'll give $10,000. That's the incredible beauty of a 10% tithe. You just say, this is what God has asked me to give back in absolute faith and affirmation that what comes to me comes from him. Now, we, we, we say we're going to do that until we get it. You know, and then we get it. And then we have this extremely material sense about it. But if I give away this money, then I won't have it anymore. Right? And what kind of vibration are we putting out? But the mere fact of saying 10% of this belongs to God, it's not even mine. When I first started tithing, I was traveling a lot and lecturing. And most of the money I got actually came into my hand, often in cash, because I was doing a lot of counseling. And I would get paid at that time for counseling. And I was just, I'm a very, like, not sophisticated financial person, but I have a very clear understanding of prosperity is the way I, only way I can say it. Whatever came into me, I had two envelopes in my wallet. I never put God's 10% in my wallet. I never even thought it was mine enough to put it in there and then take it out again. I would get $90, I would get somebody to change the 10, I would take the 9 and I would put it in God's envelope. I just never, I never wanted to take it to be mine and then I didn't want to tempt myself, but I didn't really feel tempted. It just wasn't mine. It didn't belong in my envelope. I didn't get $100, I got 91 or 90, whatever it was. That was just what I got because 10% belonged to God. I've traveled all over the world. I've always had everything. I live in a wonderful home. I've always had everything I've wanted. You know, in recent years, there's been a little more actual money, but I did all of it on nothing. Nothing. I mean, I'm nothing. I want to say nothing, especially in those early years. I really want you to understand. I mean, nothing. Like zero. I had no money for... I mean, until I married David, then a little bit came through. But I had nothing. And yet I went all over the place and just had so many adventures. But I mean, it was like the, the less I had, the more powerfully I had to tithe. Because, woo, you don't want to stop now. You're so close to the edge. If you don't give away 10% of this, there's no telling what's going to happen to you. It was sort of like uh, we went on a trip once with Swamiji. We had so little money, and Swamiji was always... Every so often he'd take us on these journeys. We went to Carmel once, about six or seven of us. You know, I got $50 a month total. Carmel is not a place that you go on $50 a month. I mean, you can't have lunch. This was quite a few years ago, so things were less. Somebody actually figured out how much money we spent per minute on that trip because it was just stunningly large amounts of money for us, including Swami having everybody buy me an expensive dress as a present. We'll just buy this for Asha, won't we? Like this, you know, like all right, people just didn't know what to say. He was just pushing us to just be more expansive and see it in a bigger way. And we also had all just started the practice of tithing, and we were saying, this is just a way of uh, scaring us so much that we better keep tithing, you know? <laughs> because if we don't get into some other magnetic flow, we are, you know, we are really sunk in this situation. And it just somehow, don't ask me how, it just all worked out. You know, I never really had more than $100 of debt for more than a couple of weeks. It just would always work. Something would always happen. Because the magnetism was there. There was no logic. There was no physical reason. But the magnetism was always there. Okay, now, I mean, that was a long digression. But I feel sometimes I am astonished how few people understand what tithing is and how few people actually do it. That's all I can say. I just say that. Frankly, I'm very surprised how few people tithe. I feel like it's this gigantic pearl right in the middle of the path, and all you have to do is pick it up, and then it's yours, and yet people can't. And I recognize now, I'm not stupid, I recognize now that 
Whoa, it's a big thing. It's very easy to talk about faith in God, but when you actually have to give away your money, and it's so cute, this is what I love about it. If you have very little money, you're terrified to give away 10% because it puts you below what you need to live on. If you have lots of money, you don't want to give it away because it's a gigantic check, you know? <laughs> and so I've just watched everybody on both sides of it. Everybody has their reason, but the reason is just not really understanding that this world is about magnetism. And if I move magnetically through this world, then I draw to myself everything I need. That's prosperity, right? So if we want to be a channel for whatever we want to be a channel for, we have to, we have to act with great dynamic will and great understanding that we're just looking out on a universe that's just made of energy. And if I put out the right energy, then eventually, and even Templeton said, for 10 years, then they always end up prosperous. Because you don't necessarily know what kind of karma you've got behind you. So you may have had wrong attitudes for a really long time, and the first day you shift them, you haven't changed everything. You've just begun to define a new future. Because tomorrow is the result of today. And yesterday is, today is the result of all those yesterdays. So if you don't like it, then shift it. Um, what I'm going to shift over to now, as I was referring the other Sunday in Sunday service, I said the eight manifestations of God are the single, one of the most useful tools in the whole teaching. The eight manifestations of God are the key to magnetism, as far as I can see, because it's quality and quantity of energy. And so in every circumstance, every circumstance is different, and that makes us think too much in terms of details. Am I kind? Is it time to stand up for myself? Is it time to acquiesce? Is it time to be fierce? Is it time to be gentle? You know, we sort of ask all those different kinds of questions, and they get very specific, and we don't always know. But what, you, what you're trying to do, and Swamiji says it here, we attract to ourselves by being on the vibrational wavelength of that which we're trying to att attract. And he, he talks about music or poetry or business or whatever it is. Each of them has their own vibration. And he, he, he makes some hints there. You, know, you don't attract something without really being on its wavelength. And one of, he, he says earlier, one of the great flaws of certain kinds of channeling is that people are encouraged to try to manifest talents they don't have or given the belief that they're going to be able to manifest them without actually putting out the energy to manifest them. And so I remember um, Marguerite, who's a very extremely talented dancer, was talking about Todd, who's a very gifted pianist, and she used the artist phrase, Todd has done the work, is how she put it. You know, so anybody who's very good at something, especially some artistic field, recognizes that it becomes effortless because you put out so much effort. And maybe you were born with it, but that means that in some lifetime or another, my nephew, who's only uh, almost 14 now, from a very young age, has had this tremendous ability to improvise music. As a little child, he, without ever being taught, he could just sit at the piano and play really beautiful songs. I, could, I just would sit and listen when he was seven and eight years old. In fact, he never could really learn to play the piano because he played it too well. He had to pick up an instrument that he couldn't play, which is the saxophone. But his ability to play is way out of proportion to his age. But he's obviously done the work somewhere. And so when Swami talks about if you want to you know, sing the song, you have to really love the song. If you want to be able to write the poetry, you have to really love the words. But, but you don't just love. Love means energy. You have to put real energy behind things. And you have to put yourself on the vibratory wavelength of that which you're trying to attract. Now, above all, what we're trying to channel 
as devotees is we're trying to channel the right consciousness. We're trying to channel the power and the presence of the spirit. And even if we're trying to do music or poetry or business or educate children or whatever it is, all of which are very valid things to do, heck, we're going to spend all our time doing this anyway. We might as well do it as channels of higher consciousness. For one thing, it'll work better. Number two, it'll be more fun. And number three, it'll really help us. Otherwise, we'll just get rich or famous or whatever, but we won't really have what we want. So what we're really trying to, to be on the wavelength is, is the vibration of superconsciousness. And the, the Indian teachings has very simple presentation, which is the spirit manifests in the world in eight ways. And I know some of you know this, but it's just so perfect for this. And I always have to um, take a moment to remember them. I remember at Sunday service, I couldn't remember. Okay. Love, peace, joy, calmness. Um, energy, which is sometimes called power. It's written out as power, but I find energy easier to understand. Um, light, sound, and wisdom. Okay. Now, in any circumstance that we're in, if we want to improve our magnetism, what we want to do is we want to become a better channel for a higher state of consciousness, and how is that higher state of consciousness manifested in the world? Through one or another of these qualities. Okay, now I'm actually going to take a break and then we'll come back and I'll just really sort of run through this and just talk about it practically, how it really works in your life. This is, this is one of, I mean, there's so, many, there's so many little like keys, but this is just absolutely one of the best. Because no matter what circumstances you're in, no matter what the details are, no matter what mood you're in, no matter whether things are going well or poorly, you can always become an instrument of one of these. And as soon as you become an instrument of one of these divine qualities, your magnetism begins to be what you want it to be. And as soon as it's what you want it to be, you begin to attract to yourself a new circumstance. You can just shift your whole destiny just by understanding this simple um, fact. Okay, let's take a break. And then we'll come back. And make this what I've written up here more clear. Okay. Any questions? All right. Um, this is the way this works: the eight manifestations of spirit. You have to start by appreciating that the, the divine always has an answer, and there's always a divine response to every situation. But you have to appreciate that there's not always just one divine response because there's many different kinds of people. And each person, everything that happens to us in our life, it, just as Tom was saying at the beginning really very astutely, we're always channeling something. So what are we going to channel? And in, in, in many circumstances, we can't always be sort of this, we have this ideal picture which is often false of this sort of behavior that we're supposed to be. And one of the ways of, of thinking about these different manifestations of energy is that they begin to sort of make very concrete what it means to be in, in the right vibration. Um, now, let me just sort of describe a little bit of what each one means, but it's, it's obvious it's sometimes necessary to explain peace and calmness. But, you know, love is a response that we can have a lot when people perhaps are doing something um, that, that we, we need to calm them down, we need to make bridges. Love is a very nice response. 
But if, for example, your duty is as a soldier and you have to be set out on the battlefield and your job is to shoot someone um, and you have to shoot someone, let's say it's a righteous war and you really are fighting and you have to fight. We can use the Second World War when the uh, negative force of Hitler absolutely had to be stopped. Well, you can talk about loving Hitler, but it's not a real um, useful feeling at that point because what you really have to do is you have to try to kill him. Okay? Right. Now, that might also not be a very joyful experience because the conditions might be horrendous and the act of shooting people could be not a lot of fun. But nonetheless, there's got to be a divine way to relate to it because everything happens in the divine. So you look at this and you see, well, for example, there's calmness. Now, calmness is very distinct from peace because a battlefield is anything but peaceful. But in the midst of a battle, you can still be very calm. You might not have much joy and you might not have much love, but you can have calmness. And when you look at this and you realize, well, calmness is a divine manifestation. And so in this particular circumstance, the way that God can manifest and the way I can manifest God's presence is by choosing the vibration of calmness. Everything may be going to pieces and very great soldiers, powerful soldiers often talk about, you know, this extraordinary sense of calmness coming over them. People who are often very heroic in very trying circumstances will feel as if everything recedes and becomes very quiet and this great calm comes over them. And they move through total chaos and all that's going around them, but they, they get into a vibration and they become a channel for that particular manifestation of spirit as they go about doing their job. In a battlefield situation, for example, you could also draw on the quality of wisdom, which is you can uh, strengthen your capacity to go forward by thinking in a wise and expansive way about what you're doing. There's no love of what you're doing, but you may understand the wisdom of what you're doing. You know, you can stand back and say, I have to be here. Well, you may, the wisdom may be that if I don't fight, I'll be shot as a deserter. And that doesn't hurt to think about that. Is it worth sacrificing my life or is the wiser course of action to go forward? Or it might be the wisdom of recognizing that I may have to give up my life for this cause because I've chosen to be part of this cause and I believe in this cause, um, but I don't, I don't feel joy in it. But nonetheless, I just have to do it. You can use divine wisdom. God would not have put me here if there wasn't something for me to do in this circumstance. You can just go all the way to the highest kind of wisdom. Of course, energy and power, using the battlefield image to continue, sometimes that's how you manifest spirit. Again, it's not peaceful. It might not even be calm. Maybe calmness is beyond you. Maybe you're simply too frightened or even too angry to be calm. But at least then you can direct power. You can direct that power with as much wisdom as you can muster in the moment and then just do what you have to do. And maybe you can also draw upon the powers of light, which is, again, maybe this is a war of light against darkness. And so you think about the power of light and you feel yourself as cutting through as an angel of light through all this dark force. And you can see in the circumstance that it's very hard to call it divine. It's not Jesus in the crash and you're not sort of worshiping the baby Jesus singing Christmas carols. But nonetheless, one of the eight manifestations or some of the eight manifestations of spirit are going to apply. Do you see? Okay, and maybe you're, uh, maybe you're very humble. Maybe you've gotten sick. Maybe you used to have a very dynamic career 
where you used to be able to do a great deal. And you could be, you could manifest a lot of wisdom and you could put out a lot of energy and you could be something you used to love what you did, but now you've become ill. And you just can't act in the way that you used to act. And that used to be your self-definition. This is what I channel. This is the power that I'm inspired to give. This is what I love. And you don't have any of that anymore. Okay, but then you can perhaps just experience God as peace. And maybe even you realize that in that peacefulness, there's more joy than I thought there was when I was rushing around, putting out all this energy. I don't have any energy left, but I can at least be just a cheerful little blob here. When Linda Gerber was at the end of her life, for those of you who remember her, she was a very dynamically active person. She did so many things and single-handedly created great events and decorated rooms and remodeled houses. And, just, and she was always on the go. And then she just lost. Her body just didn't work anymore. And in the last few months of her life, she, well, she, she went step by step from lying on her bed upstairs, lying on the couch downstairs, finally just being in the hospital bed, finally not even getting out of the hospital bed. Hospital was in her home. Well, how, how are things doing, Linda? She said, this is where I live. You know, she was just doing nothing. And she was just saying, I used to do so much, and now I do nothing. But what she held on to powerfully was the sense of joy. You know, she was just there. And she said herself, and, and she also used the power of light a lot. She would say, when it gets too much for me, I just look here and I go into the light. And, and she just would always direct her attention that way because sometimes she would get frightened. Sometimes, you know, just the thought of uh, dying and the pain that she was in or the thought of leaving her husband it was just too much for her, but then she would concentrate at the spiritual eye and she would go into the light. And she would become part of that manifestation. She couldn't, she couldn't use her wisdom and she would lose her joy because she would get very sad about it and that would make her agitated. So she would just go into the light. And that would, that would save her. Okay? Um, sometimes a mother, uh, just of a, a, a small child, I know when Padma was raising her babies, you know, she just couldn't do anything. Swami just told her, do Kriya while you nurse them. <laughs> because, but what moves a mother of a small baby is just the love of the baby. And that's all. Sometimes nothing else. You become so tired, you don't have any wisdom. You can't meditate at all. You really have even no energy. But all that you can become is you can become a channel for Divine Mother's love. And you just give everything to that child and you're not meditating, you're not serving, you're not doing any of the things that you used to call my spiritual life. But there's eight manifestations of spirit, so you become a manifestation of love. And that's the only one that you're able to do, but you do that. And who's to say you're not as much as you ever were? And also, one of these will always solve the problem that you're in. Whatever, whatever situation you're in, even sound, you have to realize sound is meditating on the ohm vibration, but sound is also the use of the spoken word or, or of, of music. Often in circumstances, all you may have is the calmness of your voice. You know, just to speak. I, uh, this is not exactly about speech, but it's a little bit about speech. There's a man named, uh, who was a, is still a detective in the San Francisco police force, a longtime friend of Ananda. He's now, I think, he's, he might even be head of the detective department, although he, year, enough years have passed, he may have retired. 
But he talked about, he was, he's a meditator and a devotee. And he talked about early in his career when he was really much more on the street, he was pursuing a drug dealer. And he was on, in one of the uh, really funky hotels in uh, the Tenderloin. What used to be called, it's still called the Tenderloin up in San Francisco. And he followed this man into, uh, down these narrow hallways. He was just trying to make an arrest or, or capture him. And he turned a corner, and this drug-crazed man was standing there with a shotgun right at his chest, you know, just this far away. Just suddenly, boom, like that. And he, was, he looked into the man's eyes, and he said they were just crazed with whatever he was taking. He was just nuts. And uh, Michael was just looking right at this drug addict, and the drug addict had his gun like that. And the first thing that Michael thought came to him was, breathe. The second thought that came, it might be your last. <laughs> so he went immediately into a state of great calmness, right? And he didn't really feel that much love or peace or joy, but the first thing he went into was a state of calmness. And he just, just stared at the man, and all other realities just disappeared. Then he actually used sound, because the calmness of his voice went through sound. And the man was holding the gun, and I think Mike said to him, give me the gun. And they just stared at them, each other for a moment, and then he gave him the gun. Right. And so life circumstance asks all kinds of things of us. We can't always, some people think that the spiritual path is just floating around, and then when anything really real happens, then they don't know what to do. It's not at all. It's the eight manifestations of spirit. And you can sort of see how uh, you can be a great channel in whatever circumstance you are. Now, sometimes people have an inclination more toward one or another. Some people really prefer the wisdom aspect of spirit, and they, they just like to sort of stay back and, and reflect about the principles involved. Some people are very drawn through the power of love, and their whole way of relating to the world is just to love everything and everybody. I particularly like joy. I realize that, that everything for me follows out of joy. Joy comes first. If I can feel joyful about what I'm doing, then I love everything else and I feel calm and I can function. If I'm not feeling joy, everything gets very difficult for me. But sometimes I use the power of wisdom or energy to develop joy. Because sometimes I realize I'm not having any joy because I'm not putting out any energy. And a lot of times, energy of any kind is just what you need. And this is where the energization exercises are so useful. You look at a situation and you realize the only problem here is that I am not putting out any energy. And if I just put, and sometimes in circumstances I say to people, we have a little phrase that I say, just do your dharma in a vacuum. <laughs> Which what that means is, maybe there is no, I remember a woman once just had terrible financial problems and she just could not figure out what to do. and There was nothing practical. I said, just take tiny steps that you can do, put out whatever energy you can, and just don't think beyond the moment. Just do it in a vacuum is what I meant to say. Because all you can do is put out energy of the right kind. And sometimes that, there is nothing you can do. It's just hopeless. Think of the story that Swami tells of the man trying to climb, the mountain climber. He just came up and he fell and he went up and he fell and he went up and he fell and he went up and he fell. It wasn't wise. <laughs> it wasn't very joyful. It wasn't very peaceful. But all he had to do was put out energy. Because that was the only manifestation that was left to him. So he put out energy. And he put out enough energy that he became 
so in tune with the divine that an angel came and held him to the mountain and took him up the top because they admired him because he didn't give up, right? So every single circumstance that you're in, when you think, I don't know what to do, ask, what can I do in, in this? What can I do? And then simply do that. And, and then it, you become a magnet for more of the same. And you get on, that's why um, uh, mass, uh, Jesus says, pray believing. And you think, well, that's sort of like a, a contradiction. But you pray as a manifestation of that which you're praying to or praying for. Now, you, to pray believing, you would have to pray with energy, wouldn't you? Because if you really believed it was going to happen, you would do it with energy. And if you believe that God's going to help you, you would already feel a certain amount of love for God, wouldn't you? And you would even feel the joy of anticipating that your prayer is going to be answered. So even as you're praying, believing, you begin to become a channel for the very state of consciousness you're asking to be given to you. And then you have that magnetism, and then as to those who have, more shall be given. To those who have not, even the little they have will be taken away. This is why so much of the spiritual path comes down to right attitude. Swamiji said, Master was just very, very big on right attitude. Attitude is the consciousness with which you do things. Because you can do all the right things, but with the wrong attitude, you're not creating the magnetism to become a channel for what you want. So people can be apparently very good, but if their inner vibration isn't, if they, they might be generous and they might you know, be serving people, but if it's all about self-importance, it's all about me, it's all about what I'm going to get from it, or fear, fear of being thought not a good person, you don't see fear, self-importance, egotism, self-aggrandizement. It's not one of the manifestations, is it? Right? But maybe you have a great deal of egotism. At least be calm about it. Right? And I mean that very seriously. Maybe you've made some horrible mistakes in your life, and you're having to face them, and you get very, very agitated. Well, how can I be an instrument of God, and how can I be in tune with God? I'm such a terrible person. Well, maybe you are a terrible person, but you can at least then be calm about it. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? That you, you won't find one circumstance in your life in which you can't manifest one of these qualities. And if you start manifesting any one of these qualities, then you start becoming attuned, and once you become attuned, you start becoming a channel. And once you become a channel, you get blessed by that which flows through you, and everything begins to shift. It's just a never-ending answer to every single problem. Okay, any questions? Yes. And you don't know what to do, you can use the power of sound. I, I use affirmations a lot, and I use chanting a lot. I really like that. Because sometimes nothing else is working, and then you just start saying, door of my heart, open wide, I keep for thee. From joy I came, for joy I live. And part of you thinks, oh, not really. But you just keep, you keep saying it, and then pretty soon there you are. It's just, it, the sound, the sound itself has a certain power if you use an uplifted sound. Yeah. Or you go into silence, you cover your ears and go into quiet. People are yelling at you, and you just can't calm down. Well, you use sound by putting your plugs in, and you just become silent. You use silence to separate you from it. You run away from that which is making all that terrible noise. You just get yourself quiet again. You use sound, or you use humor. That's light, also means lighthearted. I have a friend, uh, Danny Levin is his name, and he is so astute in the moment. I'm going to tell a story about SRF because it's such a good story 
about using light and lightheartedness. Um, SRF is, doesn't have a very enthusiastic attitude toward Ananda, and sometimes it filters down into the smaller people. And Danny is a very um, confident person, and he just he has a lot of chutzpah. Okay, he has a lot of chutzpah. And he was down on a book selling tour in Southern California, and they were having an open house at the Lake Shrine, one of Yogananda's wonderful centers down there, one of the SRF's wonderful centers. And so Danny went there, and they were, you know, a lot of people didn't know different people, and they were greeting each other. Somebody came up to Danny and said, you know, my name is so-and-so. Uh, I'm from the hospitality committee. Are you with one of the centers? And Danny said, sort of. He said, I live at Ananda. And she, being more narrow about this, sort of pulled herself up and just turned and walked away from him. Okay, now, most of us would just let her walk away, but not Danny. Danny follows her, and he taps her on the shoulder, and he calls her by name because she's introduced himself, herself, and she said, he says, you know, he said, if you're going to be so rude, better not say you're from the hospitality committee. <laughs> had the wherewithal to just accept it and apologize to him. But you know, that was really using light in a very real sense because he just focused a little bit of light onto the situation instead of letting it get him down and being heavy about it. He just went up with it. I mean, most of us don't have the capacity to just respond like that. Wasn't that marvelous, though? And he could have gone in any other direction, but it just turned the whole situation. How many times have you been places where somebody just uses a light touch, and you really are th shining light on it? Humor or perspective is a way of shining light on situations. So people who, who are funny, you know, it, being funny is in the right way is a really just a great quality sometimes. It just helps so much. Okay, I remember when Swami was teasing me about something, and, and, and I was pretending to have my feelings hurt. I said, oh, sir, you're making fun of me. That's when he got real serious for a moment, and he said, no, he said, I'm not making fun of you. I'm merely taking advantage of the fun which is already present. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and another time, just speaking of humor, I love that one. And that's really the way it is, isn't it? And that's what we always do. We take advantage of it. Once um, I was trying to, to be more thoughtful in the way I spoke. And so what, what I would do is a lot of times I'd start to say something and then I would censor it. And I would just like get halfway in and then I would stop. Sometimes I would even say, oh, never mind, I don't need to say that. I came, at that time I was Swami's secretary. This was like in the early, mid-70s. And at 4 o'clock every afternoon, uh, I and several others would arrive at his house with the mail. We didn't have telephones even. And the mail, and so we would bring the mail over and it would be like his first contact with the outside world. He was writing the path during those years. So we'd show up, and we'd have tea, and we'd give him the news. And uh, once I came in, and he said, you know, Asha, I was meditating today. And in the middle of my meditation, this, this um, inspiration came to me that what you really need is, oh, never mind. <laughs> and I mean, I was there. I was all the way, and I just hit the ground. And, you know, of course, I started to laugh, and I said, it's that irritating? He said, yes, it is that irritating. <laughs> but, you know, he could have just told me not to do it, and it wouldn't have gotten my attention by just doing that. I mean, it was so perfect. He was great with it. 
but he just shined, shone a little light onto the situation. He used wisdom. He understood me. He knew what would really communicate with me. To be scolded would just make me feel really bad, but to do a really good joke on me would make me catch, catch it really nicely. I remember once to this one woman, he sang, he sang, almost all of love is a many-splendored thing in such a way that you would never think of love as a many-splendored thing after that. I mean, this woman was over-romantic and just too sappy and it had gotten in very unrealistic and had gotten in a lot of trouble. I don't know why he started, but he started singing it and he just took it so far over to the top that whatever part of you ever wanted to just go there, you could just never do it again. <laughs> I mean, he could have lectured forever and never communicated as much as love is a many thing. You know, it's just over. You were just so embarrassed to have ever liked the song. Oh, it was horrible. But just, see, you know, it was just in good fun. But there was a really something really deep under it. So a lot of times we have to think more creatively. Maybe we, we don't want to just use energy. Maybe we want to bring a little light into the situation. All right. Any other questions or thoughts? Yes, Duncan. Well, peace is the absence of conflict, the absence of difficulty. You may feel very peaceful, but many times we're in, in a very dynamic situation. You can't always... Sometimes people try to cling to peace. They think that spirituality is to be peaceful. And so they refuse to engage, essentially. Life is asking a great deal of them. People around them are asking that I'm spiritual. You know, I'm always peaceful. And your wife or your husband or your child really needs something from you, but I'm always peaceful, right? But you're not putting out enough energy and you're not acting with wisdom. So sometimes, sometimes you have to engage in a, a big argument with someone. I, there was a, a friend of mine, we were doing a very difficult project um, uh, the person's temperament was very fiery and um, there just came a time when the person just started um, picking a fight with me and I wasn't the least bit angry but I could just tell they just needed to fight with someone and it was better that they fought with me okay so I was completely calm but we had this huge screaming argument right in the middle of the office and you know they yelled at me where she, uh, she was at the top she was at the top of the stair, and I was at the bottom of three three-story stair. We had it right there, like that, you know. She might have even thrown some things at me. I don't remember. But we just had this huge fight. I was never the least bit angry. But if I had said, now, now, be calm. Don't get upset. It's all, all is God. Everything is fine. She might have thrown something really heavy at me. <laughs> you know, she needed to fight. And I, and I loved I love her, and so I knew she needed to fight, but very calmly I just fought with her. It wasn't the time for peace. It was the time for energy, for power, for love, and for calmness. If I had actually become angry, uh, it would have escalated. But we just yelled at each other for a few moments to the horror of everyone around, traded very dynamic and interesting insults, and you know, then we just it sort of crested, and then it all began to calm down, and eventually we just began to laugh. If I had ever lost my calmness, or if I had insisted on peace and didn't have the courage to put out the energy, it would have just been an awful situation. You know, sometimes people really need something from you and you just have to give it. Sometimes you have to be extremely powerful and peace is just not the answer. You have to really fight back. And at other times, everybody else is being really agitated. Why buy into it? Just be very calm. 
Swamiji is always so peaceful about things. I mean, just, I mean, I've seen it many times when everybody else is just running around. He's not merely calm, he's just peaceful. He's just very peaceful in himself. There's just no agitation. And he'll, he'll, he'll counter situations where everybody's being very agitated by, by then it, peaceful is sometimes appropriate. People are coming in and they're excited and they want you to do this and you want to do that. Well, let's listen to this music for a while. Let's just be peaceful. Let's make everything like that. Then wisdom can come through. Yes, Duncan? It, 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 you know, that does seem right, Duncan. That is exactly what I'm saying. Sometimes peace and joy, either you don't have them, but just you, you, you don't have them, or they're not appropriate. They are just not. Somebody, um, somebody dies, and the family is terribly distraught. It's just not the time to be joyful. You shouldn't, it's not, it's not relevant, it's not the question. The question of joy is not the relevant question. The question is what is needed now. And so, and see that what I'm saying is precisely that, don't get hung up and think you've got to be all eight at all times. Sometimes you just choose energy. And you don't worry about anything else. I mean, sometimes something really bad is coming at you. And it's not a question of whether you love it or not, it's just a question of whether you respond. You can kind of bring in love later. But right now, you just have to respond. And even if you respond, even with a little bit of hatred, it's better to do that, have your energy just to be a little bit off, than, than not have the power to do what's needed in that moment. Because you're thinking, oh, but devotees are always like this. Devotees are always exactly what they are. Focus on, first focus on what you're capable of doing at the moment. And then focus on the best that you're capable of doing at the moment. I mean, I remember, I often tell a story of having an argument with David or getting very upset with him in a certain circumstance. And I played this game with myself where, you know, it's like I could totally forgive him and just overcome this like Christ might. And I had to say, not an option. I could go completely berserk and start hitting him with hard objects. Not necessary. You know, and so I sort of would like come in from those two angles as to where I could actually stand that was genuinely sincere, sincerely me. I didn't forget the possibility, but it just wasn't an option. I just had to move to where I am. So you may know that it would be great to stay peaceful in the midst of this. You might even say it's great to stay calm in the midst of this, but not a choice, you know. But I'm going to respond, and I'm going to respond with agitated energy, but at least I'm going to respond. And then you start channeling energy, and then lo and behold, you may calm down. You know, you may discover that you'll calm down. So you just forget it, and then wait and see what, what comes next. That, that, so it makes you much more dynamic. Real, truly spiritual people do not follow little patterns. They just do whatever is required. Yes? Whatever is appropriate. Yeah, whatever is appropriate. But sometimes it's only what you can do. You know, there was, there was a woman who used to get on people's nerves because she was so energetic and she was so intense. And Swami just said once, don't you just love her intensity? No, actually, sir, I don't. Her intensity makes me extremely nervous. But he looked at it differently. He just saw what she really had was a lot of power, and she used it. 
She was not particularly calm, peaceful, joyful, or loving. But she had a lot of power, and she used it, and he really admired that in her. Everything else will follow. Right? Yes? You to avoid doing it. Danny has the capacity to say cheeky things like that, and it's fine. Because he's not, he really is just light. No, you do, you practice. You channel what you can channel. And then through that vibration, you get more of that, and that leads you to everything else. Okay? That's exactly the point. You, do, you don't freeze because you're not perfect. You just do what you can do. That puts you in tune with something. And whatever you're in tune with will lead you to everything else. Because they all interplay together, of course. Anyway. Uh. <laughs> you win some, you lose some. <laughs> you know? All right. I think that pretty much covers it as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Thank you very much. It's true to my word. I said the least opportunity I like to throw this in, so I did. Okay.